Money is changing, it's evolving, it's innovating, it's getting faster, safer, more open. Technology innovation is kind of an unstoppable force. Hi, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and this is The Money Movement. I'm here in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Adina Friedman, the president and CEO of NASDAQ. Adina, wonderful to have you. Well, it's great to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah, this is fun. So I know you've just arrived. Yes. Uh, and obviously, this is the start of Davos. It's the start of the year. And everyone always wants to ask people about what they're seeing and what's on the horizon. And that's sort of this moment. And you sit in a very unique perch on top of NASDAQ, so to speak. And I'm interested to hear just at a very high level, what do you see when you think about capital markets in 2024? certainly in contrast to the past couple of years, but also just genuinely, yeah. what do you see emerging? Sure. Well, I think that, as you mentioned, the last couple of years, it's actually been a very quiet time for IPOs. It's been a time when the overall economy has changed a lot with in terms of monetary policy, very significant increases in interest rates to stave off inflation. But now, as we've seen through the latter half of 23, you're starting to see inflation come down. You're starting to see the Fed pause on interest rate increases with the hope that as we go through 24, we might get to a more normalized um, rate environment. I think that as a result of that, you're starting to see some optimism start to come in to the capital markets. And the U.S. economy has remained resilient. Mm -hmm. So I think on the back of that, there's more confidence that investors realize that they have an opportunity to put some risk capital to work this year. So we are hopeful that we'll have a more vibrant IPO environment this year. We have about 85 companies that are on, you know, filed to go public on NASDAQ. I think they're waiting Amazing. for the environment to be ready. So we're really excited to have the opportunity to bring them to market this year if, if the economy continues to show that resilience that it's been showing. Yeah, it's fascinating. Even the anticipation of a change in the monetary policy environment and just the health of the economy and everything else has had such a dramatic even in the past few months, dramatic yeah. impact as well. Yeah, and actually, if you think about through the capital markets, the capital markets are there to, especially the equities markets, are really meant to try to predict the future, right? Mm -hmm. The future earnings of a company, the future potential that a company has. So even when you look at times when there have been recessionary periods, the markets tend to move ahead of the economy. Mm -hmm. So we're hopeful that even now we are showing resilience in the economy and you're starting to see, as you said, the potential for monetary mm -hmm. policy to be eased a bit. I think that that obviously allows investors to model out the future of businesses a little mm -hmm. bit more successfully and it gives them more confidence. Yeah, absolutely. So I jumped right into the questions about like what's happening in capital markets, <laughs> but maybe stepping back a little bit, something I like to do with people on the podcast is a little bit about your own journey as well. So I guess in a very simple terms, what brought you to NASDAQ and maybe a little bit about your own kind of passion for providing these markets and what you see that as and what you see that bringing to the world and both how you got there and kind of the mission that you're carrying as sure. part of the role. 
All right. Well, I started at NASDAQ over 30 years ago as an intern right out of business school. And I really wanted to be a product manager, but I wanted to work in finance. And I also wanted to live in Washington, D.C. And mm -hmm. the little known fact was that at the time, NASDAQ was headquartered in Washington, D.C. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because we were a subsidiary of the National Association of Securities Dealers, which right. most associations are in D.C. Yeah. NASD and yeah. then automated quotations, NASDAQ. My That's goodness. the creation right. of so NASA. Tells you I haven't done <laughs> enough of my Wikipedia. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I joined to write product plans for some of the trading products. So I really got into the trading part of the business right out of school. And I loved it. I mean, I have to say, markets are so dynamic. The capital mm -hmm. markets in the United States are filled with so many different interesting forces. Mm -hmm. I think also the markets were changing a lot. So regulation was changing. We actually demutualized and separated from the NASD my first seven years there. Mm. And then very quickly, I actually was offered the opportunity to be the head of the data business. We created the data division in 1999, and I was the first head of that. So I was able to kind of grow up running a P&L, which mm -hmm. then I also then became head of strategy, ultimately a CFO. And then I left and right. went to Carlisle as a CFO. And I then came back to NASDAQ now over, I think, nine years ago almost. And I became the CEO seven years ago. So it's been quite the journey and I've loved it. I am passionate about what we do. I mm -hmm. think that what we do is important to the economic workings of the country. We all now provide our technology to 130 other markets around the world. Mm -hmm. We also have a whole suite of software solutions that really help banks and brokers manage integrity within the system in terms mm -hmm. of regulatory reporting and anti-fin crime. And then we also offer the opportunity for corporates and investors to have better interactions together by providing a lot of transparency tools. So we do a lot beyond our own markets, yeah. but it is the foundation. It is kind of honestly what makes us so passionate about what we do. Yeah. Technology through and through. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I have worked with NASDAQ in the past uh, in, in multiple lives as a tech entrepreneur as mm -hmm. well. Well, it's an amazing story. I think a lot about capital markets over the long run. You know, there's sort of always been this concept of, is there a way to have more democratized access to capital or larger types of capital markets that can serve eventually a much longer tail of companies and others. And I'd be interested in just a little bit of your long-term take on how large can these national or global capital markets become? How many companies can they really support? And, you know, with the Jobs Act did a number of different things. And one of those was obviously to change the way people undertake becoming a public company, but it also is sort of changed the rules for how capital formation happens for private companies mm -hmm. and different ways and took some steps. But over the long run, from a mission perspective, do you see bigger is better or more participants? How do you think about the sort of evolution of the scale of what these capital markets can be? Well, I think first, it's always good to focus on the investor. Right? And saying, how can we get more people to be engaged yeah. in the capital markets? Because it is such a huge wealth creator. And one of the things I was actually quite encouraged by, there's a new study that the Fed has put out that says what quintiles of the economy are invested in stocks. And mm. today's 58% of Americans have indirect or direct ownership of stocks, which mm. is great. And if you're starting to look at it down through the income quintiles, it's actually all the way through the economy yeah. now that people are in stocks. And that's really important because when you also look at over the long term, and I, there's a long-term metric that I've looked at recently, I think it's over about a 30-year period, you know, the stock market has given 
well over, let's say, 5,000% return, whereas earnings or wages have increased about 660%, right? So if you're able to get more people to put money in, either own equities through being part of a company that gives employee equity or own equities through the market. So it's a great opportunity to grow wealth across the economy. Yeah. So that's the first thing to recognize. At the same time, there's a huge responsibility that companies take on when they decide to enable public investors to be investors in their company. They have a lot of transparency obligations. They have a lot of regulatory obligations. So not every company is ready for that level of rigor. So I actually view the capital markets as more of a continuum where having seed capital, Mm -hmm. angel investors, VC, growing up into becoming a public company, potentially at some point being owned by private equity if you're transforming in a new way, Mm -hmm. and then coming back out into the public markets, Mm-hmm. That's a healthy ecosystem of capital raising, access to capital for mm-hmm. companies in different stages of their lives. So I actually am not a believer that every company should be right. a public company, right. but I also am a believer that we have to be very careful about not over-regulating mm-hmm. the public markets because then it'll make it so no company wants to go public. And yeah. the Jobs Act, I think, was an attempt to make it so that the capital markets were a little more flexible. Right for companies, made it so they could stay private longer. Yeah. But now it's a matter of making sure when they are public, they don't suddenly get crushed with the regulation. Right, right. But I think that piece has been effective overall. I won't go down this rabbit hole, but I think it's fascinating to watch with crypto, the sort of explosion of these digital exchange mm-hmm. markets where these tokens are basically like going public as technology projects in a very different life cycle. And obviously the need for markets regulation around that mm-hmm. is a big topic, which again, I don't want to necessarily go down that rabbit hole. I think with the focus that you have and obviously coming into Davos and the forum as well, you walk down the street, it's AI everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if it's been blockchain everywhere here and there, like, but basically the technology trends, the sort of exponential tech, it's in everything from climate to data to all these other areas. You've got a unique vantage point as well as the president and CEO of NASDAQ. And when you look at capital formation in these public markets around these technology themes, what are the big themes that you're seeing that are driving markets? And what are you most excited about when you see all these existing companies that are transforming themselves as well as these new issues that are emerging around all this? Well, I think it's actually interesting. First of all, finance is an area of immense amounts of innovation, as you know. Yeah, I do. And it's actually, that's what makes it so exciting to be in the financial industry, but also Mm -hmm. sitting in the capital markets as a capital market and trying to understand how innovation either Mm -hmm. affects us. So we obviously bring AI capabilities into our markets. We bring it into our software businesses, Mm -hmm. especially around anti-fin crime. I'm sure you're using it in that regard too. So how do you root out criminal behavior? How do you make sure that everything stays safe? AI is a wonderful tool for that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have a lot of other innovations. And in my experiences, the capital markets are extremely data-driven. We've always been probably one of the most data-driven industries in the mm-hmm. world, which means that you have the ability to organize that data, you have the ability to track and trace that data, you yeah. have the ability to get intelligence off of that data. So new technologies often come first into our industry. So blockchain, I think, as you saw it come onto the scene, it was mm-hmm. first and foremost in payments, in finance. Yeah. And it can be applied to supply chain management, Lots it can be things. applied to a lot of different industries, but 
we were yeah. kind of the first forum. Same with AI. AI is already in the markets. We have our actually our first AI-driven order type that was approved by the SEC that we're oh, launching really? this quarter. I did yep. not know that. To help improve fill rates in the markets. And then we also, you know, we apply AI, as I mentioned before, across a lot of our workflow tools to mm -hmm. help our clients manage their liquidity more effectively. So it's a really interesting area mm -hmm. because... I think that it's everywhere. Now, I think with blockchain, I've always said that blockchain was going to be more of an evolution than a revolution because it really takes a village to get that new technology to be fully embraced by the entire industry. Right. It requires a you know a retooling of a lot of technology. But it is, as you know, it's such an incredible innovation. So it's a matter of how do you leverage it into the markets? How do you make it so payments mm -hmm. are faster, safer, more global? I mean, those are the types of things that are really exciting to, to consider. Yeah. But I think right now, AI is, of course, the talk of the town. So mm -hmm. I think we'll be starting to look at how those two things come together. Yeah. I'm giving a little talk later this week on sort of machine-mediated money and what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, will things like stablecoins be, are AIs going to use smart contracts and stablecoins to interact with each other right. and all these things? So there's a sort of world of convergence there, for there sure. There is, actually. Yeah. I'm thinking about just you leveraging the blockchain technology as a way to to track and trace the validity of a video yes. or, you know, there's Proofs. a lot of other use cases Absolutely. that will actually apply to the AI Absolutely. world. So yeah, pretty we interesting. Need, we need cryptographic proof of lots of things. Exactly. And, and exactly. now in a world of generative AI, it's kind of nuts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm also interested to hear you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in support of the climate agenda. And I remember if it was a year ago or the May Davos or whatever, there was, you were kind of convening some of the world's financial leaders and it was a major theme. And I think mm -hmm. John Kerry was talking to the group. And what are you seeing happen at NASDAQ in terms of energy, no pun intended, <laughs> around real financing happening behind the kinds of companies and technologies that are going to have the impact that everyone hopes is going to drive real change on yeah. the climate side. I mean, well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize the need to finance these innovations, right? And so yeah. that financing can come in a lot of different forums. But one of the areas that it's been actually a particular focus right now is how do we finance, like bank financing of longer term carbon removal projects or yeah. financing of innovative new green technologies. Mm -hmm. And the banks actually come into the forefront on that because a lot of the early investing is going to be more in the lending space. Mm -hmm. So how do they actually underwrite yeah. these types of projects? Well, one thing that NASDAQ has is something called Puro Earth. We have a majority investment in the largest carbon removal marketplace in the world. So it's basically designed to create forward contracts where a company who's looking to offset their emissions and they can't do it completely themselves, yeah. they can go to this marketplace, they can buy carbon removal credits. They're very high quality industrial carbon removal credits, but it, they can buy like, let's say a five-year for a contract. Well, that then shows, gives the company who's mm. providing that capability a forward view of revenue, which then they can go and borrow against that they can expand their production capability. So it's actually an interesting way to finance, tremendous. You know, to try to catalyze financing in this energy transition. And then, of course, there's also just pure technology innovation. Yeah. And you're seeing the VC community get engaged in that. You're seeing, obviously, the government coming in and providing subsidies and various mm -hmm. governments doing that to really catalyze that innovation. All of that's necessary. Every single yeah. element of this is necessary piece. to make yeah. a difference, for sure. Yeah. Well, I think 
it feels like the dialogue has been ongoing here at the forum for, I don't know how many years, a long time. A long time. This, a long yeah. time. But it actually feels like the dialogue has shifted from like, I don't know, what do we do? Yes. To like look at all of these things that are happening and all of the infrastructure that's developing and things that were maybe more theoretical around batteries and energy storage and solar and others that are industrial scale. It's like, it's really amazing. That's right. Actually, that's what I find really interesting is I do feel like we do a lot of talking here in Davos, <laughs> um, but I do feel like the last couple of years have been more around what are you doing, not just what are you saying, which I totally. think is helpful. And I think with the energy transition, it's a decades long mm-hmm. effort here. So maintaining the dialogue, but really coming up with solutions. The other thing is we provide, and you might be interested in this one. So we actually provide a carbon removal registry capabilities that's mm-hmm. all built on blockchain. So it's a smart contract. I had remembered you had shared yes. that you were building it. We yeah. were building it yeah. while we've launched it now. So we're launched, we've launched it for Puro. We're now offering uh, out to any carbon removal marketplace where they can have a perfect record of all of the removal credits, which I think is important for the integrity of this marketplace. Absolutely. But also it enables them as they, you know, to track and trace it, to show change of ownership. And I think it would actually bring a lot of integrity to the carbon removal space in general. I love that you're doing that. It's amazing. So thank you. You're, <laughs> yeah. I know. It's, it's, like, like, no, it's, it's a great. It's, it's a great way to use that yeah. innovation. Yeah. I yeah. think it really is. Yeah, yeah. More people need to hear about that. We're trying here. Here uh, we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. All right, I'm going to pivot a little bit to the Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. So BlackRock is a big strategic partner of ours, and actually they manage the most of the reserves of USDC. And so they got involved with us there, and now this is another major thing as part of a whole family of these. But I know a couple of these ETFs have landed at the NASDAQ. And I'd be interested just to hear your thoughts on Bitcoin ETFs. What does this mean? Is it any different from any other ETF from a NASDAQ perspective, or do you think it sort of signals something from a market perspective around this asset class? Oh, I do think it's an interesting signal. So I would start by saying it's the same and different. So of course, the process for listing an ETF, we have a very well-known process. You go through the SEC process, and then you get approved from the SEC, and then we've gone through our listing agreement, and they get approved for us. Right. The difference between an ETF, though, and a company listing is Mm -hmm. then we have to actually line up a liquidity provider. There's something called a lead market maker that kind of serves as the way to transfer the ownership of the ETF to ownership of the underlying. Mm -hmm. So they almost create a repository of the underlying security mm-hmm. or the underlying asset, asset. Yeah. I call it that in case yeah. of Bitcoin, so that they're always making sure that they're harmonized with what they're buying in, as ETF and the actual underlying yeah. asset that says. So that, I think, has been an important process for us to go through with mm-hmm. BlackRock, mm-hmm. as well as actually with some of the exchanges that they're relying on. So yeah. Coinbase is a big partner to them. So I think those are important distinctions, but mm-hmm. now we say, okay, now this ETF is listed on NASDAQ, traded on NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. It's got the regulatory overlay of a security mm-hmm. because ETFs yeah. are security. And of course, we're highly regulated. So mm-hmm. I think that it allows investors to have an opinion about Bitcoin, the movement and the trajectory of Bitcoin without some of the friction that might come with under owning yeah. the underlying Bitcoin. And so I think that's actually a really, really interesting innovation to help the crypto industry to continue to advance itself. And so it'll be interesting, but I'm curious to hear Mm -hmm. from your perspective, Jeremy, actually, Mm. as soon as I, you know, we launched it and you and I were in communication last week, I was wondering what you were thinking about it. Like, how do you see it as part of the evolution of the crypto space? Yeah. Thank you for the question. I think it's very significant and 
I've been at this now going into my 11th year. So had been in from the very nascent. Uh, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. Very early. So from very, very early nascent time in the industry. And my first response is actually related to what you just said, which is it's fascinating to see effectively what you have is you actually have a regulated market structure wrapped around this that mm -hmm. it has investor protections, that has underlying everything from those market makers to custodians to market surveillance to proper, you know, mm -hmm. kind of everything that kind of wraps around that is, it's a pretty significant form of de facto regulation. And so I think in some ways, the launch of these ETFs actually reflects a de facto meta level of supervision that maybe didn't exist. And now it kind of comes in. And so that's interesting. I think what's also interesting about it is the range of market participants is really broader. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Jane Street and so many other amazing firms who are going to participate in this infrastructure in a sense, mm -hmm. and who wouldn't in the past, but now they are. And so you kind of have a who's who of major electronic markets firms and investment banks and trading divisions mm -hmm. and others that are now participating. And they now all have a vested interest in the asset class in a way that they didn't. I mean, there were some futures, there were some other things in the past, but this is a, a really different level. And so I think the kind of interest and engagement and acceptance at the very top of institutional finance, that's a major shift, right? So that's there. But I think maybe in other ways, it's very significant in that it will, in fact, send this signal that this is here to stay. And that's been a question mark. You still have certain large personalities who will say, you know, this is going to zero or whatever it is. But I think most people are going to say, okay, this is here to stay. I want to understand more about this. What are all of the technologies behind this? What are all the different types of applications, things like stable coins, real world assets, all of tokenization. So there's this much, much broader, I mean, Bitcoin's like the tip of the spear, right? Mm -hmm. It's one thing. And so there's this whole other arena. And I think it's going to bring more attention. And it's going to also provide a kind of credibility backstop, in a sense, that will give mainstream institutions, I think, more willingness to evaluate, look at, participate, et cetera. And, you know, it's, and frankly, really, I think it's powerful to have a regulated infrastructure like this, especially on the backs of frauds and bankruptcies and all the things that have happened from an unregulated market, right? So all of those things I view as, as very positive. And so we think it's certainly going to be a really strong growth catalyst for the whole industry, mm -hmm. not just this as a specific asset or a specific investment opportunity. Yeah, I think it is a bigger signal to how there can be some regulatory overlay yeah. in this particular type of asset class. Yeah. And then the question really is, what's next? Um, yeah. But I think right now, having this ecosystem work, having the liquidity in the ETF work well, we're seeing tight spreads, we're yeah. seeing strong volumes, and then also making sure that the LMMs, the lead market makers, have the ability to manage the underlying liquidity as well. Those are all things that we're mm -hmm. going to learn over the next several months and, um, and see how it continues to evolve. But I agree, yeah. it's a big step, and we're really pleased to be partnering with BlackRock and Valkyrie yeah. on their launches. Very exciting. Very much so. Well, it is super exciting. It's interesting. I think it also kind of ties to... I think some other themes, which are 
technology and regulation. And you sit at the center of that because the regulations of the technologies that you use to conduct your business are always evolving. And I'm not going to ask you to make public comments about the SEC or anything like that. But I mean, I think your general view on sort of the progression of innovation and the ability for not just markets regulators, regulators more broadly, mm-hmm. and you deal with markets around the world, mm-hmm. so regulators to adapt to build policy around technology yeah. innovations. You must face that in your own business. You see lots of businesses that you do business with that mm-hmm. face that. And mm-hmm. we certainly right. face that in a significant way. Just how do you think about that interplay between technology innovation, regulation, et cetera? Well, I think that, first of all, technology innovation is kind of an unstoppable force. Mm-hmm. And so even though there are many times moments when the technology comes forward and the regulators aren't quite ready, the fact is that the innovation is going to happen. So yep. it's a matter of the regulators then saying, okay, how do we, I don't want to say catch up, but more adapt themselves to mm-hmm. be able to integrate this technology into their regulatory overlay, right? Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see that now with AI, which I think is good. I think I do feel like the regulatory infrastructure has turn pretty fast towards mm-hmm. addressing or understanding that they have a need to address it. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not they actually have to change regulation or whether they just need to interpret their regulations to mm-hmm. apply mm-hmm. to new tech, the new technology is the big question. I think that's actually a, a big open issue whenever innovation comes, mm-hmm. but certainly in the crypto space. But yeah. how flexible is the regulation as it exists to be able to apply to new things that are coming versus do they actually have to write new rules? Right. And so I think that's the complexity, frankly, that, that regulation have to deal with. Yes. My personal view is that we've operated in a regulated environment. I've been with NASDAQ, as I mentioned, almost 30 years. So, you know, 30 years of working with a regulator, you can innovate. I mean, we are launching yeah. an AI-driven order type. We have hyper-fast, extremely advanced systems that run our markets. Mm-hmm. We work with regulators all over the world who deploy that technology everywhere. So I do feel like you can operate mm-hmm. successfully in a regulated environment and innovate. Yeah. But the pace of change might not be quite as fast as you want. But then when you do make the change, you do know that the protections are in place to be able to implement that technology with a view towards investor protection. I think the one thing to recognize in finance, unlike... I won't name another industry, but other, mm-hmm. unlike some other industries, there's just so much money. And it's these are people's personal savings. Yeah. You know, they're hard-earned. It's the ha- underpinning of society. It's, it's the underpinning of society. And all of their hard work has been poured into something that they've chosen to invest somewhere. And we have a job to do to make sure that they feel like at least they are going to take risk. And we can't protect every mm-hmm. investment, but that they have an environment that provides for some level of protection. I think that's mm. important. So as we look at bringing innovation into finance, I do feel like mm. it's important to kind of respect the regulation that exists, but doesn't mean you have to accept it all, but yeah. you have to respect why it's there. Yeah. And then say, okay, what might we need to do to change it in order to make it so that this new technology can thrive, right? Totally. So that's the, kind of the way that we operate at NASDAQ. Well, we use that phrase, uh, fostering responsible innovation. Exactly. And that is both for industry and regulators. And if you can come mm-hmm. together and do that, then I think you can get tremendous outcomes. That's right. And then you also know you have a persistent, sustainable innovation, which yes. is exactly what you've built. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, Adina, this has been a lovely conversation. I'm glad that it can be part of your kickoff for the week. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me, Jeremy. It's great to spend time with you. You're very welcome. Great. Thank you.